It is good to see you. I want to uh, start our sermon today, and I want to start by giving you a bit of a story of what happened this past week. I, I don't know if you know, but do you know, as your pastors, we meet every week on Tuesdays. On Mondays, we rest, and then on Tuesday, we meet to discuss what uh, service has been like. We discuss what Sunday was like, uh, how we were able to minister to you, and then we plan for the next service. Do you know that that happens? Some of you know, some of you don't know, now you know. So this week we met, and when we met, as we were talking through uh, what has been happening in church, we asked ourselves this question. Guys, are we achieving anything? Does anyone have a story somewhere? that of a, of a changed heart or a changed mind after all our labor and striving this year to form Christ in you. We were looking for some encouragement. And the reason we were looking for some encouragement is because more often than not, the issues that come on pastor's desks during the week or, you know, as we continue with life, sometimes they make us wonder. Are all our heartfelt series, everything we have made, this year we went through the seven deadly sins, we went through family life, uh, family marriage and, you know, topics on family and marriage with Bishop and then later Canon came with the Christian living, Mora has come here with uh, the series True Numbers and sometimes when we hear what is happening in church, we wonder, are we achieving anything? Are we getting through to the hearts and minds of God's people? Is there any fruit for our labor? So this is why we were asking each other, at least share with us for our encouragement. As we were pondering this issue, this issue where we are receiving, you know, stories here, this is happening, someone did this to their wife or their husband, or this is what's happening in church, we came over this word, about, we came about this word, godliness. As we were thinking about it, we considered its importance, how much the importance of the concept of godliness is downplayed, especially as far as dealing with the problems that we face at home, at work, in our friendships, in our marriages, in our parenting, our, in our general lives. We downplay as believers, we considered how much we downplay the um, effect of ungodliness, that the reason the of the, the reason for the problems and the struggles that we have in our personal lives, in our marriages, our parenting, our workplaces, is ungodliness. And we considered whether we know that godliness is a solution to those issues. We thought that usually people tend to seek practical solutions to these things. Instead of just being godly, when you want to think through your marriage and you want a solution for your marriage here and parenting there and workplace here as a leader there, this and the other, most of the time people are seeking, you guys, our believers, are seeking practical solutions to the problems. You, we have gotten to a point where we downplay the importance of godliness as, solution, as a solution to those things that we face. And any attempt to point out that God and godliness may be, in fact, the solution to the, a problem may be understood to be out of touch with reality. You're not giving me practical advice, no, no solutions. You are out of touch with reality. In fact, let me ask you this question. Have you ever gone through a difficult time as a, um, as a believer, and you shared this with a believing Christian, uh, a sister, a brother, and they listened to you keenly, and after they listened to you, they proceeded to tell you, what? I think you should pray about this. 
and you felt and heard dismissed or like they didn't care enough to give you a practical solution to your problem. And then did you go on to another person and complained about how believers spiritualize everything instead of just coming down to the ground and dealing with things as they are? Has that happened to you? Let me give you an example of uh, a couple of months back, a friend of mine and I were, were, were talking, and we were talking about this book. There's a book called Radical Candor by someone called Kim Scott. Now, this book is about effective communication at the workplace. You know those books that we're looking for, Seven Atomic Habits of... Uh, I've not gotten my hand on that book, so I can't remember it very clearly. Uh, you know, Twelve Rules of Life by Jordan Peterson. You know, we, those books, you know about them. So this is one of those books, and she was telling me about it, and she said, it's about effective communication in the workplace. Let me tell you what Kim Scott says. He says... Uh, there are four ways in which you can communicate. One of them, and he's trying to teach people how to communicate effectively at the workplace. One of them is radical candor. Let me, let me give a practical example of different approaches of communicating something. So he said, say for example, you are in a meeting and uh, someone senior to you was doing a presentation. But as they were standing there, you noticed that their fly was open. And now uh, you're wondering, what do I do about this? And so he's saying, radical candor is when you are truthful and direct, but, but you call them aside and you, you say to them, you call them aside and you communicate clearly what's going on, specific kind feedback, you know, and, you know, and then you, you, you protect them, so to speak, from further embarrassment. There's something else he said, uh, he called obnoxious aggression. And he said, this is where, in that meeting, you just say, and by the way, uh, if I may just say something, could you, could you please zip up so that we can be able to com continue with the uh, meeting? You know, and some people are like that. See, I'm just telling the truth. Like, what's the issue? Plus, all of us experience this. So anyway, you know. Uh, then he called, he said there's something else he called manipulative insincerity. And he said this one is where you will find that person. Maybe there is another session where they are continuing with their presentation. There's a short break in between. But... In that uh, break, you're talking to them, but all you tell them is how you love their fashion. In fact, the choice of trousers that he usually picks are the best. In, in fact, where do you buy, where do you get them? I would like to know where, but you, you don't get, in fact, the, the issue of the fly, I don't even think anyone noticed, don't bother about that, but it's because you want to get them to like you, you want to praise them and you know, and all of that. And then the fourth thing he said, he called it ruinous empathy. The kind of empathy that actually ruins people instead of helping them and, and, and you know, in this one, he he said, you're afraid, so you are unable to communicate clearly, and you just hope to God, ah, they will not be wearing that trouser, so life will move on, we're going to be fine. His point here, trying to teach people effective communication. And as my friend and I are talking, we said to ourselves, this is actually, he's just calling people to godliness, because what he's saying is, be truthful, be kind, be gentle, which are all things that the scriptures call us to, right? So there is complicated terms and explanations. But if you were a godly person, you would know not to, to be unkind and just say, by the way, you should uh, zip up so that we can continue with the meeting, you know? It is basically godliness that he is calling us to. If only you could tie the thread and see that the books that you're reading, the practical help that you're seeking, if you were to look underneath it, 
what you're being called to is humility and patience and gentleness and kindness, all the things that God is calling us to do, but a lot of times we are unable to connect the dots. We want the practical solutions. So, the big question before us today is this. How much, child of God, how much do you think godliness has to do with your actual life? How much do you think the struggles in your individual life, in your friendships, at your workplace, in your marriage, in your parenting, how much do you think those struggles have been caused by ungodliness, either yours or of the people around you? And how much do you really think that godliness will be the solution to those problems? I want us to go to book, the book of First Timothy. This will be our anchor text. We want to look through this issue of godliness and to see how if only we were godly, 80, 90% of everything that we are facing would be resolved in our lives. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 to 10. First Timothy 4, 7 to 10. Right. Thank you, media team. Paul says this to Timothy, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value. What to a gym? Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the savior of all people and especially of those who believe. This is why as your pastors, we labor, we strive that Christ may be formed in you. This issue of godliness, godliness that we should train ourselves into because it holds value for all things and holds promise for both the present life and the life to come. The question I want us to ask ourselves is, what is godliness? What is this we are being called to as believers? And to be able to make my case clearly about what godliness is, I want to start by saying what godliness is not. And for me to make that case, I want you to move a little bit further to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 1 to 5. Paul says this, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Then do you see that dash? After all that description, he says, having a form of godliness. These people that he has just described, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Paul is describing here what it looks like to have a form of godliness, but in truth, there are certain things that are in our hearts that have yet to receive the power that God has provided in the gospel, in his word, for transformation for our hearts. And he goes on to describe these things. We are here, we are believers, we are seated here. And, you know, I'm look, I was looking at those descriptions and I said to myself, are we, do, let me start by this first one, the very first one that uh, 
Paul mentions here is people will be lovers of themselves. Have you noticed how much in this current age and time we are called to love ourselves and to care for ourselves and, you know, this and the other and all manner of things that we are being taught to do? I was thinking about this and I thought to myself, do you, if you look, today we are doing a lot of heart audits, something that Bishop mentioned earlier on when he was uh, g- uh, taking us through the family series. If you look at, at yourself, are there ways in which you have loved yourself so much so you would rather disobey a command of God than fail to love yourself? Let me use a, a light example. You are tired and, you know, Part of care, self-care and self-love is to rest and to take some time off and to, you know, this and the other. And someone says, but, you know, we should not forget the gathering together of believers. We should go to church. And they say, yeah, 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 you know, church is every week and I'm going to be there next Sunday. But I need to, you know, take care of my mind and take care of my body and take care, rest, yeah? Loving yourself over and above a command that God has given I was thinking about how Pastor Charity was here asking us to give for the mission. And we're here, we're listening. And, you know, first of all, you don't see yourself going into those uh, hardship areas because flash floods and, you know, you never know what might happen as you're traveling there. And you think to yourself, yeah, I could have given, but, you know, I need to make my hair and I need to, uh, you know, make my nails. And there are other things I need to do. And, mm-hmm, see, I've seen Prados. I, there are some people, I think, who can give uh, at least 100,000 shillings. They'll be fine. They'll be fine. And, you know, love of yourself. There are choices you make for yourself, for loving yourself. And easily you downplay commands of God and not, not take them very seriously. Lovers of ourselves. Lovers of pleasure. Paul goes on to describe being rash and being conceited and being proud and boastful. I was thinking, on, if you're here on Thursday, there was a song that we sang. We, we usually sing it on Sundays. It, it goes like, uh, You know that song? And I was singing that song on Thursday. I thought to myself, for you to throw down a crown, it presupposes that you have a crown. You consider that you have a crown. Right? Because why are you singing that song? What are you throwing down? And you know, when we are singing those songs, we are usually worshipping that song for Mimi Nipungue, Wewe O, because there is a way in which you are proud and boastful, considering because of certain things that you have and certain things that you own. And so as you look at these things, you are telling yourself, yeah, yeah, I need to remove this crown. There is a crown that you put on in the morning when you wake up. I don't know what it could be for you. It could be your money. It could be your looks. It could be your status in society. I don't know what it is, but there are crowns that we consider we have, which we are usually throwing down at the time of worship, that we might consider God above us. And only at the time of worship. Because soon after tomorrow on Friday when we wake up. <laughs> and you know, this thing of being boastful and proud. It's not, some people boast, yeah? Just outright, loud and clear boasting. And some of us consider that to be bad manners. But not because we are not boasting in our hearts. Just because we are wise enough to keep, to not see it. But you could be seated in a room and looking around at the people and thinking, mm, I, I think I'm better than these people. I think I'm more intelligent. I think I'm, yeah. If a man was to look for a woman here, I think he would choose me. 
consider too how we are looking like you know there are ways in which you are boastful in your heart you might not communicate it but you think those things of yourself you have crowns you have on your head boastful and conceited and rash and disobedient to parents abusive and um we were here during the marriage conference. I don't know if married people, you remember, if you were here for the conference. Do you, were you reading the questions on VVOX? What people are putting across? And you are looking at an example and you're curious. Are these people members of this church? Ama, you know we made announcements, so maybe they are coming from the byways and highways. Because you look at what someone is doing to their spouse, what they need help with, and you are curious... Are you really a believer? You, do you usually come here? On, have you been here for the series, for the marriage and family series? Because this doesn't look um, like it could be in the same person. Abusive, conceited, all those things. But we are here. We worship. Sometimes, you know, the service leader will come up to pray. But we are so in prayer and in worship, they have to take some time before they actually start to pray because we have enjoyed the songs. We're enjoying the songs. We listen to gospel music. This form of godliness, we dress like believers, we talk like believers, we open our homes for ministry, right? Whenever we need to meet as a um, real group, uh, in our real groups, your house is open for ministry, you serve in a ministry even, you bring your children, you're convinced children should know the Lord, uh, you give your tithe. There are many things that on the outward show that you're a believer, but if you are to look into your heart, you know that you have not yet been changed. You have been on location in vicinity. You have come to church for many years. You have been close to God and close to the things of God and enjoyed the things of God, even sermons. Um, <laughs> I'm laughing because sometimes after we preach, people will come and say, that was a very good presentation. Thank you. You enjoy how someone thinks and how they communicate and their English alongside it. But your heart remains unchanged. The anger issues you've always had, and you are justifying them because why did they do what they did to me? Surely they deserve this kind of response. So when Paul asks in Corinthians, wouldn't you rather be wronged? Must you take each other to human courts, to human, to judges that are not godly? No, I would not rather be wronged. No, absolutely not. I would rather fight for myself. I will have my day in court. A form of godliness in your enjoyment of the vicinity of being around church but not really changed. Some of these words, maybe one or many, still describe you. So godliness is not in our outward appearance. And I can't tell you how many times as pastors, ramba. There are many times, you know, we sit together and we say, uh, we need someone to serve as a real group leader and this, and we discuss someone and we consider, yeah, 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 I think that's a good person. And, you know, Pastor Devi goes and talks to them. And then a couple of weeks later, some, we come by certain things that they are doing and how they live their lives, and we wonder. But we thought, no, did we not? But have you not always been in church? Have you not always been this kind of person? We come to figure out you never were that kind of person. You only had an outward appearance of godliness, and we bought in. Godliness is not in outward appearance, but in the inner work of the heart. So then what is godliness? Godliness is a lifestyle that reflects the character of God, the kindness, the goodness, the patience, the justice of God, the mercy of God, all 
the things about God. Do you remember last year we did a series that we uh, talked about where we talked about communicable attributes of God and incommunicable attributes of God. Do you remember that? So that we cannot be omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent, but we can love, we can be merciful, we can be just, we can be faithful, we can be all those other things that God is that he commands us to be. A lifestyle that reflects the character of God and I do not mean how you understand, how you, what your meaning is of justice and forgiveness and mercy, but what God's meaning of those characters is. What he means by kindness and what he means by mercy, what he means by forgiveness, what he means by justice, what he means by those things, not what you mean by those things or what you have learned from the world about those things. It presupposes this lifestyle that reflects the character of God presupposes that you agree with God and that you do not disagree with him regarding those things. Because it is impossible to be godly if you disagree with God. God calls you to be something or to do something, but you say, no, I don't think God is right on this one. But usually because it's hard to say that you disagree with God, a lot of times people will say, I don't think the church is right on this one. Isn't it? Because we are called to be this. Let me just throw a jab at the ladies. Submit to your husband as unto the Lord. But you consider that and you think, hmm. I don't think that's realistic in this present world, is it? Because if you consider, see, I'm working the way he's working. And, you know, and mm, I don't think that the church is right in requiring. But in truth, you are in disagreement with God. For you to reflect the character of God, you would have to be in agreement with God concerning the things that he's calling you to do and not in disagreement with him. Might I say also that effectively, when you disagree with God, you make yourself God because you sit in judgment of God, isn't it? Because you take what God has said and then you weigh it and then determine eh, whether it is doable or not, whether it's right or not, and then go on to live your life according to your determination of what you have decided. Do you understand what I mean? Let me give an example of what I mean when you say you must first know what God means by something so that then, that, so, so that then you go on to obey him regarding that thing, to be godly, to live a godly life regarding that thing. Let me talk about forgiveness. And I think I have said that here before because it's very close to my heart. Colossians chapter 3 verse 13. I want us to consider how we are called to forgive. Because we all understand the meaning of the word forgive. But do you know what we have been taught by the world? That I can forgive you, but you live your life and I live mine. But me are forgiven. If someone asks, mm -mm, me are forgiven that person. But they live their life and I live my life. Look at Colossians 3.13. Let me start from verse 12. Paul says, therefore as God's holy, uh, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgive how? As the Lord forgave you. Now the question is, how did God forgive you? Number one, 
God was the offended party, wasn't he? But he's the one who came. When you're offended, do you go to the offender? Or do you say, lakini si anajua Kenya amefanya? Ninahitaji do I need to go and explain to them what they have done? No. Number 1, God comes. Number 2, God has already forgiven and he I mean there are many unbelievers out here isn't it people who have yet to come to the lord people who have yet to acknowledge their own sin and come and bring it to the cross for forgiveness but god is open armed and he says when you come there is no one who will call on the name of the lord who will not be saved and so when they will come god will say welcome home my question to you is when you have said you have forgiven that person are you open to receiving them when they turn to you for it when they say he i think i have been and it's true it's possible someone has been wronging you they have no acknowledgement of that they are doing this thing to you which is why you believe you should cut them off but are you open to should they ever turn to you faster you are going and should they ever turn to you are you open to receiving them so hence my question to you when we want to forgive are we forgiving in the like in a like manner as god has forgiven us or in the way that you have chosen to understand forgiveness let me ask you another question let me talk about meekness in matthew chapter 5 matthew 5 there is this scripture that has been very difficult for us believers matthew chapter 5 verse uh, 38 Jesus said you have heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth but I tell you do not resist an evil person if anyone slaps you on the right cheek turn to them the other cheek also and if anyone wants to sue you and to take your shirt hand over your coat as well if anyone forces you to go 1 mile go with them 2 miles give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you Have we not read that text before and said no but I don't think God intends that we are walked over by people No I don't think God intends that at if, if someone slaps me I give them my others no if they take my shirt I give no 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 I don't think God but I want to ask you then what do you think God means because if you want to be meek the ones who will inherit the earth and we want to inherit the earth see mashamba is an inheritance of the earth <laughs> Maybe if you were meek God would give you that shamba So what then is meekness because you're fighting the one that Jesus is trying to describe but which one are you pursuing after are you pursuing after meekness at all or it is difficult for you to even conceptualize that God can require it of you in which case then you are living in direct disagreement with God isn't it like i said it is impossible to be godly if you disagree with God Godliness also means being conscious of the presence of God and that presence affecting you. First of all being conscious of the presence of God. Do we not all know that God is omnipresent? But do you really usually think God is like here now God is here? Do you think God is here? When you're at home in your house in your bedroom in the shower at wherever you are do you are you usually conscious of the presence of God? Maybe you become conscious of the presence of God when you come here to church and the worship is lifted to God and oh God was there. Oh, hmm. 
When Kaveso leads worship, the presence of God comes down as if it was not there before. Because it is, it's, we, we don't always live like that reality is actually a reality, that God is omnipresent. There are too many in scriptures, there are many others, but I have two examples of people who's, uh, who were conscious of the presence of God and, that, and who's, who the presence of God affected. One, Joseph. Do you remember Potiphar's wife? When she was pursuing after him, when he was running from her, what does he say? How can I do this and sin against God? Because it's like he's aware, if I indeed lie down here with this woman, is God not watching? It's not, at least Potiphar is not here. It's God is here. How then can I do this? David, 1 Samuel 24. Let's see how, let's read through this one. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse uh, 1 to 10. I have no, may I have to look for it in the scriptures. First Samuel 24, 1 says, After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he, to, he was told, David, David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men went far back in the cave. The men said, look at what the friend said, this is the day. The Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give you your enemy, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. I couldn't seem to find it, so I'm not sure what they were saying that God, this is the day the Lord spoke of. When he said he'll give you your enemy to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up and noticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he did a bit of what his friends said. Afterwards, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day have you, you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord gave you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on, the, on my lord because he is the Lord's anointed. David is so conscious of the presence of God. His friends, you know, motivate him to do something. And then he does a bit of it. And then immediately he's conscious stricken and he says, but how can I do this? How can I lay my hand on God, on who God has anointed? Which tells you, David is, he was conscious of the presence of God and conscious of what God's will was in the life of Saul, in his own life. So the fact that he's with, um, restraining himself, from doing this thing is because God, God has said, I cannot because God has said. The godly person is conscious of the presence of God and is obsessed with pleasing him. 
He's always asking himself, just like Joseph, just like David, what does God think or feel or say about this? If I say this, if I do this, will I please him? Will I displease him? Because this person has made it his goal or her goal to please his God. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, so we have made it our goal to please God, whether in this life or in the next life. Conscious of the presence of God, concerned what God thinks and feels and says about this. This presupposes that you know what pleases the Lord, number one. And number two, that you care to do it. Because might as well be another person seated next to you in church Maybe you don't necessarily, I mean, he could be here, but what has that to do with me, right? It presupposes that you know what pleases the Lord and you care to do it. Which leads to the age-old question, do you read the scriptures? Because then, how do you know what pleases the Lord? Who tells you then? Do you find it on social media, how people have described a particular portion of scripture and go on with it as if that's actually what it is without actually confirming for yourself that this is what the word of God says? Do you read the scriptures and do you care that God is present, that God is watching? Do you care to please the Lord? Have you made it your goal to please the Lord? I want us to think through what keeps us from godliness so that then we might live differently. What keeps us from godliness Number one, I think one of the things that keeps us from godliness is that we do not know or believe that there is value in godliness. In verse 8, 1 Timothy 4, where we were reading, Paul says that godliness has value for all things and holds promise for both the present life and the life to come. Has value for all things and holds promise for the present life and the life to come. I want us to consider what promise does godliness hold? Because then we might see the value in godliness and then we might live godly lives. So let's, I want to give two examples. There are many others. As you read, in fact, let me comment to you the scriptures because as you read the scriptures, then you will find out more and more of the promises that are, prom- that are given to us on the basis of our godliness. One of them, a promise for this present life. Let's open First Peter chapter 3. First Peter 3, verse 9. 1 Peter 3, 9 to 12. Peter says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. Do not repay insult for insult. Do you know sometimes how if someone insults you, you have an answer here. At the tip of your tongue, ni kupackage unatafuta venye utaitoa ifike venye imesaviwa to you. You know what I mean? Sarcastic people usually have this gift. Let me call it a gift of an immediate response. They don't need to go home and cry about it and then wish they would. Oh, the, the response is on the tip of their tongues. Do not return insult with insult. Or evil with evil. Rather, he says, on the contrary, repay evil with a blessing. Do you know how hard that is? To repay evil with a blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may what? inherit a blessing. What blessing is that? 
tunaambiwa verse 10 for whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech they must turn from evil and do good they must seek peace and pursue it why for the eyes of the lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer but the face of the lord is against those who do evil do you want the lord's face to be turned towards you when you pray do you want his ear to be attentive to your prayer but do you also want to insult to return insult with insult the bible categorically tells us if you return evil with a blessing if you do not return insult with insult then you will inherit a blessing and what blessing is this that the lord's face will be turned towards you and you his ear will be attentive to your prayer so that when you're here lifting your hands in prayer on thursday pleading with the lord on your knees then you know that god is is for you he's listening to you he wants to respond to you otherwise it says but the face of the lord is turned away from those who do what evil do you see the promise that godliness is holding out for you The other thing I want us to look at is Phinehas. Do you remember last week we were going through we Reverend Mora read through this text. In Numbers 25 I want us to reread it and look at it from the angle of godliness. Numbers 25 verse 6. It says then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. It's quite strange. When Phinehas son of Eleazar the son of Aaron the priest saw this he left the assembly took a spear in his hand and followed the Israelite into the tent he drove the spear into both of them right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach then the plague against the Israelites was stopped number 1 he brought healing into the camp because he pursued after God's holiness number 1 for other people then look at what God does for him It says in verse 10 the Lord said to Moses Phinehas son of Eleazar the son of Aaron the priest has turned my anger away from the Israelites since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am I did not put an end to them in my zeal therefore tell him imagine Mungu akitumana kwako because of kind of godliness you did go and tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him do you know covenants are not broken and especially by God God promises Phinehas me and you peace between us I am making a covenant of peace with him um he and and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his god and made atonement for the israelites do you see as this is why i'm saying as you read through the scriptures you will go seeing yeah if i do this if i am godly in this way this is what i might receive not might will receive because the scriptures are true if i do this is what i will receive there is promise held out for you it has value for all things and there is a promise held out for you for this present life if only you lived in godliness for the life to come what is the promise held out by godliness for the life to come let me ask you how many of you long for heaven do you long for heaven Oh, maybe i should ask it another way you know some of you are declaring i will not live die but i will live to declare the goodness of the lord i cancel death in because you are not longing for heaven but when the time comes you would desire to go when you're 97 you would desire to go not now you're not longing for it now but when the time comes you would desire to go sindio if you long for heaven or if you desire heaven do you realize that we will live godly lives there do you 
you know, maybe the, the picture that you have is of worship. Angels, alafu kavesu wapo. Mkilidiwa in worship permanently. This is all you imagine when you think about heaven. But you know, if there is a brother or a sister you are in disagreement with, and you say, yeah, takama ni heaven, mansion yake ijengwe uko, yangu ijengwe uko. You do think you will take that to heaven? Refuse. Na unajua unforgiving ili mentioniwa pale kwa first, kwa second Timothy 3. Pale kwa watu a form of godliness. Do you really think you will live ungodly, an ungodly life in heaven? Do you know it is illogical to disagree with God and want to live with him? You cannot be in disagreement with God and then want to be in his presence because he will require that thing of you. So then how do you want to be in heaven but are not living a godly life? Ama utaanza godliness huko somehow. Yeah? It holds, pro- in fact, let me say this. If you truly have been saved and you have been changed, then you desire to be godly. It is the desire to be godly that proves to you that you too belong among those who have been granted the gift of eternity. Because if you do not desire to be godly, and if you're not pursuing after godliness, the question you should be asking yourself is, am I truly saved? Then? Because you will not be in heaven. You will, want to, you will not want it. The same way you do not want godliness here, it will be grating on you as you are in heaven. It, it is illogical to desire heaven and to not want to live a godly life. We do not know the Lord truly. This is number two. What keeps us from godliness? We do not know the Lord truly, and so we do not admire him. And because we do not admire him, we do not necessarily want to be like him, or care to please him. If you are like me, have you, do you find yourself admiring some people? Maybe you are watching a series. There is a movie character, Pale. Ooh, main character, Ameweza. And now you even find yourself talking like them, wanting to dress like them. You know, vibes. Vibes and inshallah. You want to sh- you, there is a way you kind of want to be like them because they are so, you are really admiring them. And then when you finish, you go on the internet and you find out who is their wife, who is their husband, what children, uh, where do they live? And you know, there's just a way they are that is so attractive to you. I don't know if you can get that picture. Maybe there's a star, a music star who you really admire. Or someone in, in, in uh, the industry that you're in. Maybe they are a really good leader. And if you would get an opportunity to be like them. So you follow them. And you, on Instagram and wherever, and you try to, you know, hear how they think so that you can think in like manner. So that, you, you know, admiration of these people. Imagine what it would be like if you actually admired God. If you would want, you would admire him so much, you'd want to know, how does he do leadership? Because God heads the world, isn't it? Men, let me talk to you, married men. We are usually busy talking about submission. But I want to ask you, have you ever asked yourself, because the scriptures call you to head your families, your, your wives, as Christ heads the church. Have you ever wondered, how does Jesus do this for the church? So that I too might be, that kind of head for my wife. 
Have you ever? Because then it would, might be that we women might stop being so concerned about submission. Because the reason we are fighting is because the people to whom we are supposed to submit. But, but what do you mean? You know marriage conference, but what do you mean in submission? If the man is like, am I supposed to? But if you, the man, admired the Lord as the head of the church, you might have been pursuing what how he is like as a head, how he is as a leader of the world, how he is as a father. Maybe you're struggling with your fatherhood. God is a father. Have you ever found out from him how he fathers? Maybe you listen to other human beings about how they father, but what about God? If we really admired God, we would want to know how he shows mercy and how he's able to be impartial and how he is just and how he forgives and how he does this and the other and the other. If you came closer, if only you came closer and looked closely at the Lord, you would begin to see him as he is and I promise you, God is admirable and you would want to be like him. Your heart will begin to admire him deeply and you will want to be like him and you will make it your goal to please him. Lastly, I think one of the reasons why we, we um, do not, we, we are not godly is because we disagree, like I said earlier, with some of the things that he would have us be or do. Do you remember the examples I gave earlier of forgiveness and meekness? We disagree with him, and if we disagree with that, then we are not going to be able to do it. I also find that sometimes the first question, when you know what you should do, as a godly person, what the godly thing to do would be, the, the first question that springs up in your heart is, but what about me? Am I going to suffer in doing this? Am I going to be walked on all over? Am I going to lose out on this and the other? Am I going to have less money to do this because I'm being called to give to the building of the church? Uh, what about me? Lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. But meanwhile, having a form of godliness being in vicinity, location, looking the part, but not being the part. Look, at some point, we have to come to a point where we trust God enough to say, let God be true and every man a liar. Romans 3, 4. Let God be true and every man a liar. So that if I disagree with God, then I am wrong. And if my friends disagree with God, like David's example, then they are wrong. And if an expert disagrees with God, that expert is wrong. Never mind that they are a professor, they are a therapist, they are this, they are telling you this is the way to cope. If what they are telling you disagrees with God, they are wrong. Let God be true, and every man, including myself, including yourself, a liar. It is the only way that we will know what lies on the other side of godliness. To obey and to be godly is the only way we will find on the other side to do it in faith and trust, blind obedience, and say, let me do it and see what lies on the other side. There is only one way to know. It is to be actually godly. Remember how God says in Malachi, he tells his people to tithe, and then he says, then test me in this and see if I will not throw open the windows of heaven, and pour on so much blessing on you that you will have no room to keep it. But you have to move in trust and obedience and faith and say, <laughs> God says to forgive. 
I'm going to do it. Let me, let me see what lies on the other side. If you never do it, you will never know the promise that is held out to you because of godliness. In conclusion, let me say this. Train yourself to be godly. In verse 7, that's what Paul says. Have nothing to do with myths, godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. The word here is train. It doesn't come naturally. Not always. But because training takes time. Training takes intentionality. It has to be that you know and then now you try to do it. Wrestle with God. Wrestle with your heart. Wrestle with everything in you until you demolish, as Paul says in Corinthians, every argument and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Wrestle with God. Wrestle with yourself until you take captive every thought and bring it to obedience to Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen.